Well, good morning, OneChurch.tv. How you guys doing? Fantastic. It's so good hearing you guys' voices and seeing your smiles and listen to your worship. We want to welcome a few groups of people today. We want to welcome our first-time guest. Uh, I got to meet one couple today, and uh, that was fantastic. And I just want to say thank you so much for hanging out with us. We know there's a lot of different places you could have showed up, or you could have just stayed in bed. So it's an honor that you chose to hang out with us today, and we believe that you're here, that you being here is not here on an accident, that you're here on purpose, because God has a purpose for your life. I also want to have a huge shout-out to our volunteers. They're VIPs. So if you're a volunteer, let me hear you. And if, you're, if, if you didn't go, whoo, right, you can become a volunteer today. Come and see me after the service. But thank you guys so much for serving. And lastly, we want to be able to say a huge shout out to those people who are either watching in the overflow or those people who are watching online with us. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. We are starting a new series entitled Right in the Eye. Before I dig into this, uh, let me just say this. You may not have heard it on the announcements, but today, October 2nd, is the day for you to get into groups. So if you're not in a regular community group, we're actually having having short-term groups, and we have a marriage study that's fantastic, a prayer study, and we have all kinds of different studies. Make sure to, after the service, uh, to either go to the Next Steps table or come and see one of our staff, and we'd love to be able to help you take your next step as you get closer to the community. But we are starting a new series entitled Right in the Eye, and I promise you today, uh, today is going to be one of the most awkward, one of the most weird Bible stories you have ever heard. In fact, some of you are going to think that I'm making this up. So just to prove that I'm not making this up, I'm going to go ahead and invite you, if you have a Bible, or if you have your uh, Uversion Bible app up, go ahead and go to the book of Judges. Uh, for the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at the book of Judges. Now, if you, again, if you grew up in church, you know how it goes. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua... Judges, very good. And if you didn't grow up in church, that's okay. Um, uh, we're going to be able to talk about, I'm going to give you some context of the book of Judges. Now, the book of Judges is a history book. And um, as we, before we dig into this most outrageous story that you've never heard, let me just kind of give you some context of the book of Judges. The book of Judges is a narrative part of Israel's history that actually took place from the time that they moved from the promised land to Joshua. So it was Moses, it was Joshua, and they entered into the promised land in 1380 B.C. And then uh, 330 years later, David, he becomes king of Israel. So in between Joshua and David, we have that 330-year stretch we call the book of Judges. Now, you remember Moses, uh, he got out of Egypt, and Moses dies. Joshua takes him to the promised land. Joshua's job and the Israelites' job is to like throw out all the Canaanites who's living at that, at that time. And as we're going to see, they didn't do that. They didn't do that. And uh, the book of Judges, uh, we're going to see, uh, we're going to be looking at it, the first verse and the very last verse of the book. The very first verse, Judges 1.1, says this, book of Judges. Now it came about after the death of who? Joshua, that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? So without a strong leader like Joshua to anchor the people's faith in the Lord, to lead them into battle, they start drifting. They start spiritually drifting, and they start to compromise. In fact, the word you want to remember that defines the book of Judges is the word compromise. Say the word compromise if you would. Compromise. Now, a compromise can be a good thing, right? It can be, 
But we're looking at it more as a negative thing because we're going to see that the Israelites, they compromised their values, they compromised their faith in God, and they wanted to become like everyone else. So Joshua is a book of conquest, victory, and obedience. And Judges is a book of compromise, defeat, and disobedience. It's kind of a bummer. The Israelites failed to finish the task of throwing the enemies out of Canaan. And the book stands in stark contrast to Joshua. When you look at Joshua, uh, Israel won battle after battle. When you look at Judges, they lose battle after battle. And it's because they compromise. Now this book, as I said, can be outlined by looking at the first verse and the last verse. So let's look at the last verse today. It says this, in those days there was what? No king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everybody say that right in the eye. You see, that's where we get the title for this series, that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, when you first hear that, when I first heard that, I'm like, well, that's good. Everybody did what was right. But that's not what it's talking about. To put it a different way, in those days, there was no binding moral consensus. There were no moral absolutes. Uh, There was no one that said that this is right and this is wrong. There wasn't any black and white. There were just shades of gray. So people followed their own moral compass. Quick question, doesn't, how, what does that sound like today? Does it not? That there is no absolutes. There is no moral guidance. Uh, it's all just kind of a free-for-all, if you would. So kind of reminds me of the days when I was in ninth grade. I grew up here in Clarksville. I went to Clarksville High. And uh, I remember my ninth grade um, math a teacher was gone one day and uh we didn't have a teacher for about 20 minutes and uh i did what was right in my own eyes and the entire class did what was right in their own eyes and let me tell you it did not end well for me uh this was 85 86 when i was a freshman yes i am old and this is when principals still spanked so uh, anybody remember those days anybody want those days back yeah, teenagers don't, uh, but everybody else does, right? So I remember I got, I got sent to the principal's office because I did what was right in my own eyes. It did not end well for me, and it did not end well for the Israelites either. During the time of Judges, they were kind of like a commonwealth. They were kind of like how we were uh, before we were a nation. Uh, they had these different states, and just as we had 13 colonies, they had 12 states, the Israelites did. There was no one king, there was no one leader, but their states or tribes, as they called, and they had 12 different tribes. Now, the reason why they had 12 different tribes is because Father Abraham had many sons, right? In fact, uh, Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons. So these 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. So during the book of Judges, you're going to have these 12 states or uh, 12 tribes inhabiting the promised land, and there's no king because Israel is supposed to view God as their king. And the way this was supposed to work is that God is king, he has given them a law, and they're supposed to obey the law. And then God would raise up these judges, that's why the book is called Judges, these judges would essentially rule, and they weren't kings though. Their only authority was to distribute the law and to make sure that the law was kept. And we're going to be looking at some of these judges 
through the next five weeks. The nation just abandoned God's law, though, because the nation of Israel, during this period of time, what's, they had something in common with you. And they had something in common with me, and they didn't like to be told what to do. In fact, how many of you, you have kids who don't like being told what to do? Let me see your hands. How many of you have, to- you remember that, those toddler's years? When you would tell a toddler what to do? Scratch that. Anybody, remember those teenage years? Right? It's just like, and, and to be honest with you, we get, we, it's so easy to throw stones at our teenagers or our toddlers. Well, let's just be honest. You and I, we don't like being told what to do. Nobody likes, nobody likes being told what to do. There was no king. There was no real government. So basically, everybody did what they wanted to do. And they kind of went through this cycle. In fact, this cycle is going to be up here in, behind the screen, if you will. They disobeyed God's law. They disobeyed God's law, and that led to the next one, disaster. By the way, anytime you disobey God's law, it's going to lead to disaster for you as well. So they disobeyed. It led to disaster, which led to their crying out for help. And when they cried out for help, guess what? God always listens. God sends a deliverer, which allowed them to the next slide allowed them to become complacent. So God delivered them. They're out of their hot water. Then they become complacent. And they they said, you know what? We're never, ever going to do that again. And they didn't for just a couple of minutes. And then that led to disobeying God's law again. Now, again, this happens, this cycle happens 13 times in the book of Judges. It happens over a 330-year time period. It's like lather, rinse, repeat. Lather, rinse, repeat, right? Here's the interesting thing about the book of Judges. Even if you're not a religious person, even if you're not a Christian person, or maybe you kind of grew up Jewish, but you really didn't take the Old Testament that seriously anymore, or maybe you're, you used to be a Christian, or maybe from, you're from some other religion, here's something that all of us, everybody in this room, has in common. At some point in your life, you have disobeyed something. You've either disobeyed your religious law or grew up, you grew up with, or you disobeyed your parents. You disobeyed your conscience. Your conscience said, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, and you did it anyway. And after a time, guess what happens? Anytime you disobey, disaster strikes. Oh my gosh, what have I gotten myself into this mess? Because you disobeyed your conscience, the law, or maybe you disobeyed God, you disobeyed your parents, disobeyed your religion, whatever it was. Then it was like, oh my gosh, I need help. God, please help me, please help me. God, or you cried out to your parents, please, if you'll you'll rescue me, I'll, I'll stop doing this. Or you cried out to whatever person you believe in. God, if you can just allow this to just consequence to go away, then I will follow you all the days of my life. If you will just allow me to be healed, if you will just allow me to get out of this this legal situation that I've gotten myself to, I'll never go back. And you didn't, right? For about a week. And then after that week, it just seems like, oh, I'm, I'm out of the hot water. And you went back and you disobeyed. And it happens over and over and over again. So the book of Judges is a, is a nation for 330 years that gets into trouble, cries out to God, and God delivers them. Gets into trouble, they disobey, disaster strikes, and God delivers them. And it happens over and over. It's, now, this, this story I'm getting ready to tell, it's a very difficult story. 
Uh, it's, a, it's a little bit complicated. It's a little bit long. So I'm going to ask you to just try to hang out and lean in with me. If for some reason you get lost during the time, tomorrow this uh, sermon is going to be on the app. And you're welcome to be able to listen to it. But let's just kind of, uh, we're going to be looking at the story of how the, the book of Judges ends. So again, if you have your Bibles, turn to Judges chapter 19, and we're going to see how this story ends. And, and we're going to see the, uh, and we looked at this verse a couple of weeks ago, Proverbs 13. It says, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. And that's how we're going to see the book of Judges ends. That somebody, they're just going to keep on coming back to what makes them sick. And this book really does reflect what happens when a group of people or a community or a nation or an individual, when they just decide, you know what, I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to do what I think is right. And you can't tell me what's right for you. And I can't tell you what's right for me. And it's all kind of relative. And truth is relative. And we just kind of throw it out there. And everybody does kind of what is right in their own eyes. There is no black. There's no white. There's just shades of gray. So the story begins like this, verses 1 and 2. In those days, Israel did not have a king. There was a Levite who lived deep in the hill country of Ephraim, he got a concubine from Bethlehem of Judah. So let me kind of define what this. A Levite. A Levite is a guy from the tribe of Levi. Remember, there's 12 tribes. And they were supposed to be like professional religious people. They were like pastors or priests. We don't really know his name, but we know uh, that this Levite who lived in the hill country of Ephraim, he got himself a girlfriend. Throughout the story, she's actually referred to as a concubine. Now, a concubine is kind of like a girlfriend. They had wives, but they also had these professional girlfriends on the side called concubines. Now, just so that you know, having concubines was against God's law. It was against God's, Israel's traditions and against their customs, but they just adopted this because they, they wanted to be like all the other surrounding people, the Canaanites. They, weren't, they were supposed to stay away from this, but they just naturally just kind of fell into it. And again, that's what we talked about last week and last month as we talked about friendships, that you're just going to naturally devolve to be around the people that you hang out with, right? So uh, some time, uh, times go by, and, and the Levite says, I need to go get my concubine. She's living in Bethlehem at the time. So he goes down, uh, travels through uh, the tribe of Benjamin, the state of Benjamin, and he goes down to Bethlehem. And there he meets uh, the concubine's father-in-law. And, and uh, the concubine's father-in-law says, well, what you doing here? And the Levite says, I'm coming to t- grab my concubine, take her back home to Ephraim. And the father-in-law is not happy about this. So he, dev- he kind of hatches a plan. All right, I'm going to get you guys drunk. I'm going to get the Levite drunk, the concubine drunk. And if I can get them drunk and they can have a hangover, they won't leave the next day. And that's what happens. So the the the... The, the father-in-law of the concubine gets the Levite drunk, and then he, uh, he sleeps well that night. He wakes up with a hangover, and it's, they get out of bed at like 12, 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And the father-in-law comes back to him and says, hey, you can't go. It's too late now. You're not going to make it to Ephraim. And, he gets him, and, he, and so he stays, and the father-in-law gets him drunk again. And it, this happens like three or four times. Is everybody kind of following along with me so far? A little complicated. Yeah, thanks for that, that assurance heard no one anyway um so eventually the levite says you know what i can't do this anymore uh even though i got a hangover we have to go forward so they left late in the afternoon and they started traveling towards ephraim uh the levite 
the concubine, his donkey, and a couple of servants. So he leaves so late in the afternoon that he's not going to make it to Ephraim. So he has to stop in the tribe of Benjamin, and there's a city there called Gibeah. Now, Gibeah, again, is where the tribe of Benjamin is. So what tribe are we talking about? Benjamin. Thank you so much. All right, so she's pass- they're passing through Gibeah. He gets there. He goes to the town square. Now, the way things worked back then, the laws of hospitality were such that there wasn't any Motel 6s or Super 8s. By the way, how many of y'all ever stayed at a Super 8? Not that super. Just letting you know. All right, so they go. There is no Super 8s. There is no Motel 6s. They go to, 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 uh, pretty much to the downtown part, to the town square, and there y- y- people would kind of say, hey, do you have a place to stay? If you don't, you can come stay with me. So they hang out at the town square, and everybody just ignores them. Nobody makes them feel welcome. Nobody invites them into their house, and they're there, and it's starting to get dark. So the Levite, who's from Ephraim, and the concubine, who's from Bethlehem, they're in Gibeah, which is in Benjamin, and they're kind of, okay, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Until this old man, pretty late at night, shows up and says, hey, you guys don't have a place to sleep? And uh, the Levite says, no, we don't. Well, you come be guest at my house. Finally, like a glimmer of hope here, right? So the, the Levite and the concubine and the servants and the donkey go to this guy's house, and they stay the night. In the middle of the night, um, the author tells us that late in the evening, after they finished eating and drinking, that the house is surrounded. The scripture calls them wicked men from Gibeah. And they begin banging on the door. And this, they say to the man living there, bring out the man who came to your house, the Levite. We want to have sex with him. Now, this wasn't so much of an issue of gratification as it was humiliation. Uh, They're pounding on the door, and they want to humiliate this Levite. We don't like strangers. We don't like guests. Nobody invited them in. We wanted them to leave, so we're going to teach him a lesson. So this wasn't so much about pleasure as it was we want to humiliate this dude so that he will go back to Ephraim and tell everybody, hey, they don't, they don't want strangers around there. How many of y'all ever been? You know, sometimes the South can be very friendly, can't it? But sometimes the South can feel a little cold. You ever notice that? So when people show up in town, and I don't know if Clarksville's like this, but some places you can go and, you know, hey, how y'all doing? And, you know, I mean, there's just, they're not that friendly. And I've seen, you, that happens up north, and it can happen in the middle, Midwest, it can happen anywhere, Right? So that's kind of how they're feeling. They're getting this cold shoulder. And then, so these guys, these wicked men, are wanting to humiliate the Levite. They don't like strangers. So listen to what happens. The owner of the house went outside. And he said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, since there are these laws of hospitality, now he's in my home and we're responsible for him. I'm I'm his protector. He's under my roof. This man is my guest. Don't do this outrageous thing. Finally. Somebody is going to be the hero of the story, but the story gets stranger. Look, here is my virgin daughter, and here's the Levite's concubine. I'll bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. By the men, but the men would not listen to him, so the Levite took his concubine and sent her outside to them, and they... and. This is so vile and so horrible that I'm not even going to read the next two verses. They just, it's, it's awful. It's horrible. Horrible story. 
The next morning, the Levite wakes up, he opens the door, and there lays his concubine, and she's dead. So he takes her body, puts it on the donkey, and he and his male servant, the two donkeys, they leave town. And eventually, they make their way back to Ephraim. And he's so angry, the Levite did. He's so angry and ticked. The laws of hospitality have been violated. His concubine was murdered in the most brutal way imaginable. And he's almost lost his own life. So he decides something has to be done. So he writes a letter to all the major tribes, the 12 tribes, and he writes a letter essentially to the people who are the civic leaders, and he says this, listen, guys, this is what's happened. Something has to be done. And he writes this letter, and before he seals it, he realizes, you know what? Nobody's going to listen to this. Nobody's going to listen to this letter because they don't, they're not going to do anything because they don't know me. So he comes up with an idea. He chops his concubine up into 12 different pieces, wraps the body parts up, He attaches them to the letter, and he sends them out all over the nation of Israel. So two or three days later, these civil leaders receive the the mail. Hey, the mail's arrived. Great. Okay, you got a letter and you got a package. It's a little weird, the package. It's kind of gooey. Something's seeping out. I don't know. And it opens up, and there's a head. There's a leg. There's an arm. There's an ankle. Well... All of these 12 tribes receive this, the same letter and this, all these different body parts, and the nation is outraged. It's like, oh my gosh, we have sunk to an all-time low. Things have been bad in all the different tribes, yes, and things have been bad between the tribes, but nobody's ever done as something as horrific as this. So they all get together, and here's what the writer tells us. Verse 30, everyone who saw it, those who heard the story, saw the body parts, heard the story they're saying to each other, said, such a thing. Everybody say, such a thing. Such a thing. In other words, we've reached a brand new low. Such a thing has never been seen or done. Not since the day of the Israelites coming out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something now. So speak up. So they send out a message, and here's what happened. Verse, Judges 20, verse 1. Then all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, that's Dan is the extreme north, Beersheba is the extreme south, and from the land of Gilead came together as one and assembled before the Lord at Mitzpah. So here's what happened. They sent, this message says, every single city, every single nation and tribe, they have to send representatives, armed representatives, because we got to show up in force outside the gates of Gibeah and Benjamin and demand that justice be done. And so when they gather at Mitzvah, all the men, all of the fathers make an oath. And here's the oath that they make, that no matter what happens, we will not allow any of our daughters to ever marry a Benjamite ever. And then they marched in force, stood outside the gates of Gibeah, and demanded that the Benjamites turn over to them the perpetrators of the crime. So the Benjamin, they've received the same uh, a body part, they've received the same male, and so they expected this. So they got their own force together, and they respond by saying, no, we're not going to give you the perpetrators of the crime. They're Benjamites, we're going to judge them towards our laws. And, you, and so now you have this armed conflict. And sure enough, the 11 tribes come against the one tribe of Benjamin there at the city of Gibeah. And on the first day of battle, the Benjamites drive the other 11 tribes away in defeat. Tens of thousands of people from the 11 tribes get killed. And the Benjamites, the bad guys, they succeed. 
Second day, the same thing happens. Tens of thousands of men are slaughtered in battle, and once again, the perpetrators of this crime are not brought to justice. But on the third day, they finally, the 11 tribes come up with a strategy And the Israelites feign defeat, and they run away, and they look like they're retreating. So the Benjamites follow them in retreat, far from the city. And then another group of the 11 tribes come, and they burn the city of Gibeah to the ground. They surround the city, and when the Benjamites see that the city is on fire, they panic. And they run to the city, and now the battle turns. But at this point, all the 11 tribes, their bloodlust is up, so they they go crazy. They go and they kill everybody in the town. They kill everybody. And the only people they didn't kill are 600 men in the army who run far away. And they go from town to town to town in Benjamin, and they slaughter men, women, children, animals, until literally the, the tribe of Benjamin is just one smoldering ruin. And after about a month goes by, all the 11 tribes, they start getting some perspective, and they think, what have we done? We've just committed genocide. There are no people alive from the tribe of Benjamin except those 600 men who are hiding in the hills somewhere. So they start thinking, man, what we've done is too harsh. What are we going to do? And and somebody says, well, there's still 600 of them left, but they've got no wives. So they're going to they're going to die out because we've all made an oath. We're not going to let any of our daughters be able to marry a Benjamite. So they kind of got a thing. Somebody raise their hand. Is, has everybody of all the different tribes and nations, did, did every city send somebody to the armed conflict? Hey, is this here? Did y'all do And finally they realized that Jabez Gilead, they actually sent no one to fight this little war here, this little genocide. So they concocted, hey, let's go to this town of Jabesh Gilead, and we, the 11 tribes, are going to slaughter everybody except the women. And they slaughter every man, every child, but they take the women, and they say, okay, these women can now be the wives of the Benjamites, right? Because these people didn't show up uh, to the battle. And they realize this, there's only 500 women so there's 600 men, there's 500 women, so you got 100 guys, they don't, they don't have any wives. So what are they going to do? Well, another person raised their hand, I got an idea. This sounds good to me. You know, when they go to Shiloh during this time of year, there's always this kind of this harvest celebration. And these, many of these girls would go out and they would come and they would dance and they would twirl and all this stuff. What we do is we see the, uh, the Benjamite guys, the 100 who didn't have wives, they can go and they can grab one of those girls and they can take them off. And guess, here's what's so cool about this idea is that they are grabbing them. So since we've already made this oath, hey, listen, we're not going to allow any of our daughters to be married. We're not allowing them. They're just taking them. So this is a great idea to everyone. And they do this. And that's how the book of Judges ends. Isn't that the most jacked up story you've never heard? Some of you are like, why are you talking about this crest? Well, here's the thing. Let me say this before I dig into that last part. Some of you who were raised Christian and you were raised in Christian homes where people read a Bible story to you at night when you went to bed, they skipped this one, didn't they? They did. Hey, Dad, I want to hear the story about the concubine, the, the prostitute, and the chainsaw. And you're like, no, son, we only saved that Bible story for Halloween, right? 
But the, the, this is where the writer of Judges, they, the, he tells this entire story, and at the end of this really jacked up awful story, he ends with this verse. In those days, there were no king. There was no king. Because there was no king, because there was no final authority, because there was no one to impose the law of God on the nation, everyone did what was right, say it with me, right in his own eyes. To put it a different way, in those days, there was no binding moral consensus. There were no moral absolutes. There was nobody who said, this is right, this is wrong. This is black, this is white. There was just shades of gray, and everybody kind of did what they wanted to do. So people followed their own moral compass. There was no binding consensus. So everybody just followed their own moral compass. Everybody just did exactly what they thought was right. Now, the strange thing about the story is you can go back, and if you read the story and retell the story at every point along the way, every single character did exactly what they thought was right, the right thing to do. But when you stand back and you look at all of those right decisions, it's all really jacked up and wrong. And we, but when you drop it and you isolate each one of these from all the rest, it was like, yeah, that's a good idea. We should do this. And here's the thing. Here's why we have to talk about this. Because there's some of that in you. And there's some of that in me. There's something in me that wants to say, wait, 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 wait. Okay, listen. I know I want to do what I want to do. You manage your life and family. I manage my life and family. That's what's right for me, and it may not be what's right for you. And in fact, this is kind of the underbelly, if I could just say this, of the American dream. The freedom to do what we want, when we want, and with whom we want. That's the American dream. And I want to be so autonomous that I can do what I want, when I want, and with whom I want, and I don't want anybody telling me what to do. In fact, some of you can't wait to retire because of, that's what you want to do. I want to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want. And you're thinking, okay, but I'm still married. I got somebody telling me what to do. Okay, well, I'll fix that. And you do what is right in your own eyes. Now, because we're civilized and because we're Americans, we add one little condition, don't we? As long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, right? That we want to do what we want, when we want, how we want to, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Now, there's a lot of problems with this as we close. And we're going to talk about them over the next five weeks. But the first problem with this is this. Only the super rich can afford it. Because after a while, you're going to have to have an attorney, right? You just will. All right. In fact, uh, after a while, you're going to have to have an army of attorneys in the United States who lives in every country of the world because if you want to do what you want, when you want, and when you want to do it, you're going to have to have some people who can represent you, which means only the super rich can afford it. Now, here's another interesting thing about this. The only people that actually literally preach this type of message are the super rich entertainment type people. They're the ones who write the songs. They're the ones who writes the narratives. They're the ones that create the films. And we listen to the songs, and there's, it stirs something inside of us. It says, yes, that's me. I want to be like that. I want to be like the person who can't tell me what to do. Or we watch the characters in the movies, and we say, oh, I want to be like him. 
I want to be like her. And it stirs something inside of us. I want to have the power to do what I want. I want to have the freedom to be able to do what I want. And it stirs something inside of us. So we buy the music, we buy the tickets, and we entertain ourselves with it. But in the real world, this smut doesn't work. It doesn't work. You never find people who have real-world experiences preaching this message, right? You've never, you've never ever heard or seen a fifth-grade teacher actually talk to the class on Friday and say, Now, class, before we dismiss for the weekend, I just want to remind you, you can do what you want, when you want, with whomever you want, as long as it makes you happy. And don't let anybody tell you that it's wrong. You're dismissed. Right? No one, no caseworker has ever taken kids away from a family and the caseworker sits down with the family and comes up with a plan. Listen, how you get your children back, okay, is that you just do whatever you want to. You do what you want, with whom you want, with whenever you want, and you know what? You're going to get your kids back. That never happens. You've never ever heard of a policeman or a parole officer saying this or a judge preaching this type of message. Why? Because they know better. Here's the second problem. The second problem is simply this. This generally always works out for men better than women. You never notice that? You see, in a world where men do what they want, when they want, with whom they want, eventually women become possessions and profit centers every single time. Think about this. Everywhere that women have rights, they've had to fight for them. Everywhere in the world that women have rights, they've had to fight for those rights. Because when men do what's right in men's own eyes, when there is no king, when there is no moral consensus, when there's just, when moral individuals, they kind of think, you know what, let's just guide and let's let our feelings, let's let our heart just, just follow, we'll follow our hearts. Women always suffer. The other reason this doesn't work is this presupposition. And it's the one thing I don't want to tack attack on the end and it just doesn't work for you it doesn't work for anybody and this our our big idea is simply this you can't do what's right in your own eyes without eventually hurting someone you can't do what is right in your own eyes without eventually hurting someone so this whole thing that i'm going to do or what i want to do with whom i want to do whenever i want to do it and as long as it doesn't hurt someone that's impossible and the reason why it's impossible is this is eventually you hurt you. And y'all may want to write this, write this down. You are someone. Thanks for coming to One Church. You are someone. So if you do what is right in your own eyes, you will eventually hurt you. And you're someone. You have to hurt yourself. And ultimately, this next one is huge. You will be mastered by something. You will be mastered by something. Think about this. The thing that has mastered you, maybe a debt or a habit or a relationship that you can't figure out how to get out of, a relationship that you want to get out of and your wife doesn't know about or your husband doesn't know about, uh, you just want to get out of it, it's mastered like your everyday life. And you're thinking about this. How can I get out of this? How can I end this? Maybe it's an alcohol addiction, a drug addiction, some kind of other addiction. But think about this. The thing that has mastered you began as an expression of your freedom. 
The thing that has mastered you today has be- began as an expression of your freedom. You said, I'm going to do what I want to do, with whom I want to do, whenever I want to do it. And now you can't do whatever you want to do. You can't do all the things that you want to do because you have become mastered by the very thing that was an expression of your misguided freedom. And you have hurt you. It all began with, nobody tells me what to do. I am the master of my own fate. I am the captain of my own soul. And it begins with this autonomous idea. Nobody tells me, well, I'm a man, I'm a woman to myself, but it's not that you just hurt you. Look at this next part. You hurt the people with you. You hurt the people with you. That's why parents freak out about their kids' friends, right? And our kids go, hey, I'm not going to do that. She's crazy, but I'm not crazy. Yes, she's loose, but I'm not loose. Hey, he's dumb, but I'm not going to do that. As we learned in our last last series, our friending series, we know that's not the case. Because you, you show me your friends, I'll show you your what? There you go. There you go. So you're going to hurt the people who are with you. It's like taking a hand grenade. And do you have the freedom to pull the pin? Absolutely you do. But you're going to hurt yourself and all the other people around you. You're going to hurt them as well. But let me tell you, you're going to hurt those who care about you. Listen, if you're a teenager, you cannot hurt you without hurting somebody else. It's impossible. If you're a husband or a wife, that you have a spouse that loves you, you cannot hurt you without hurting someone else. It's impossible. If you have living parents, you cannot hurt you without hurting the people who love you. You can't do what you want, when you want, where you want, because you're going to hurt you and the people around you because they care about you. And this is the last part. I want to simply say this. You also hurt the people who come after you. You hurt the people who come after you. Can I just be honest with you? Some of you are very dysfunctional. And you know, as you're kind of working through your dysfunction, and as you sit down, maybe you talk to a counselor, you realize, you know, maybe the reason why I am this way, it's not that I intentionally wanted to do this, I just kind of saw it, it's what my dad did, it's what my mom did, it's what my grandfather did, it's what my grandmother did. And some of you, some of you are just hard to get along with. Some of you, you have these obsessive compulsive tendencies. Some of you, you struggle with drinking. And it's not, you can't even remember when you took your first drink because your dad was taking drinks before you and your grandfather before you. And now that you're past 30, you've kind of figured this out. You've kind of traced it back. You know, my dad, when my dad ran off with my mom and this and that, but she wasn't there and, you know, my parents did this. And some of you understand that the reason why you're a little weird, you're a little dysfunctional, you're a little off, it's because of your parents. At some point along the way, your parents decided, you know what? I'm going to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want. Or I'm not happy in a relationship. So I'm going to get out of the relationship. I'm going I'm to go and I'm going to have an affair. And, and, but they forgot to factor you in. And their bad decision has impacted every day since in your life. And your dysfunction has come from the the dysfunction of your parents, 
We're going to look at this verse, but there's a verse that says the sins go to the third and fourth generation. And the reason why we, we say that and the reason why I believe that to be true is because we just see this in people's lives. You see, this whole idea I can do what I want when I want with whoever I want and not hurt anyone is a myth. And, and, it's, and what's really strange to me is simply this. As a Christ follower, we shouldn't devolve to, into chaos and we shouldn't put, say, I'm, gonna, I'm only going to achieve the lowest level. No, we should be willing to say, you know what? I want to do what God wants. And as a Christian, I believe that Jesus Christ has invited God. You and I to call God our Heavenly Father. And the strange thing is, is when we do what is right in our own eyes and, and we diss God, then when our world falls apart, all of us pray, right? We all pray. There is no atheist in the foxhole. They're going to pray. And one of the interesting themes that we're going to find in the book of Judges is that every time the nation of Israel disobeyed God and disaster came, that God, when they cried out for help, God stepped in and delivered them. Because our God is a merciful God. So let me, as I close, let me simply ask this question. What can you expect God to say in your life? You've disobeyed God. Disaster has struck. And now you're crying out to God, if you were God, what would you tell yourself? And if God really is a God who loves us, and if God really is our Heavenly Father, how would you expect Him to respond to you and to me and to us and to a a nation, the United States, to our culture that seems increasingly hell-bent in the direction of, hey, I got my own moral compass, and you can't tell me what to do. Here's the thing that makes this all so interesting. In just eight weeks... We're all going to celebrate every year the birth of a king, Jesus, for Christmas. It's only eight weeks away. And it's as we celebrate the whole idea of Christmas and the king and David and the star in Bethlehem, there's going to be like this pause in our chaotic lives. And then we're going to celebrate, and maybe you've never even quite thought of it like this, we're going to celebrate the birth of a king to a nation who is very much like Israel that says, you know what, we've got no king. We've got no moral absolutes. There is no black or right or right or wrong, just shades of gray. So I'm going to invite you next week to come back to part two, and we're going to see how all of this just continually devolves into the toilet. And I just want to just remind you that if you keep on bucking against God and bucking against his law and say, I'm going to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, eventually your life will end up in the toilet as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord, for, Lord, just us being able to look at, to be honest with you, a really depressing book. But it's a book that's so needed to be spoken and taught in our culture and and today because this is where we're at. Lord, that we live in a culture and in a time where there is no moral absolutes, that there is no right or wrong. And God, I just, I pray, I pray that today that you would speak into our lives and that you would be reminded, you would remind us, Jesus Christ, that even when our lives befall disaster, even by our own jacked up choices, that when we cry out to you, our Heavenly Father, you will step in and you will guide us and love us. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Guys, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. We hope you have a fantastic week. Go and be the church.